Exodus chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may gaze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites that he had, what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I always feel like a stand-up comedian when I use a handheld mic. So if I tell too many jokes, just so much, Madison, just wave at me again, be like, you're preaching. You're not doing a bit. Uh, so Moses comes down and he's radiating the presence of God. After this, this time that he's spent in the presence of God, before God, we don't exactly know how long it's been. We know he's going up on the mountain for 40 days at a time. But when he comes down, his face is radiating and he has to put a veil over it. One of the principles that we've talked about before is that we become what we behold. The things that we set our minds on, they, they have a shaping and a transforming factor in our lives. What we, what we consume ends up consuming us. And so that's one of the things that we're going to look at today, but as a, maybe as a way of giving an, an example, this past week, Jesse and I were down in Bentonville, Arkansas. So we went down for her 
her birthday and spent a few days down there without the kids, which was great. And uh, we watched this documentary on the Avet Brothers, which is one of our favorite bands. It's kind of a folk rock band. And so we watched this documentary and I, and I got just so impressed with this, uh, this band and their family and their convictions and their songwriting that for the rest of the week, I was just wanting to listen to the Avet Brothers like nonstop. I started dressing in flannel, like they're from North Carolina. So I'm like talking about Bob Dylan's influence on me all of a sudden. Um, but then on Friday morning, Friday was the big one. Uh, because at, at the end of the trip, I kind of got my old sermon notes back out for this Sunday. I needed to wrap up the sermon. And then you want to talk about spiritual warfare. We go into this coffee shop. I mean, this is just all out assault on me trying to focus on the things of the Lord. I open up my laptop to work. Right above my laptop screen, they put on a live bike race. I'm like, are you kidding me? It's the Tour of Flanders, which I'm sure you were all watching. It was in France on Friday. Show of hands, you were watching the bike race. Okay, so you taped it, which is understandable. You taped it. But this bike race is on while I'm trying to write a sermon. If you don't know me, I love cycling. So I get wrapped up in it. I'm telling Jesse, maybe I'll get into professional cycling after all. Should we get a place in France? I think I need a couple of new bikes. I mean, it was like the moment my mind got caught up and it just like consumed me. And it was just stuck on my mind. Everything became about that thing. And that's kind of the way that we have been wired by God. We are worshipers by nature. We were created to worship God. We are created for intimacy with God. And when we're not worshiping God, we're often worshiping something else. It's not that we stop worshiping, but that our worship goes to another place. So it's about who or where our worship is going, as opposed to whether or not we're worshiping at all. And as we've seen throughout Exodus, God doesn't just save his people from their old way of life, but he saves them for a new way of life. So he's redeemed them. He's drawn them out of Egypt, but he's also drawn them in. He's drawn them in to his presence. And, and the crossing of the Red Sea, sort of the biggest moment in the book of Exodus, it only takes place a third of the way through the book. And then the second, the two thirds of the book after that, it's about what does it look like to actually live in the presence of God? And so for us, we're going to look at three things today, the character and heart of God, the radiance of intimacy with God, and then the invitation for God's people today. So I'll start with the, the heart and character of God. And as we look at this passage, this is part two of a passage that uh, Mark started for us last week, this encounter between God and Moses. And if we back up for a minute, we, we see in Exodus 32 that when the Israelites sin by worshiping an idol, Moses intercedes and begs God not to bring destruction on Israel. It's a bold request, but God relents. And then in Exodus 33, God tells Moses that he's going to keep his promise to, to go before them, to open up a way to the promised land, but he himself is not going to go with them. He's going to send an angel instead. Again, Moses comes before God and says, no, that is not enough. You must go with us personally. As in, if, if you're not personally present to us, God, then what is the point of any of this? And so again, God responds and says, okay, I will I will go with you, he says in verse 14 of 33, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But Moses still is not done. He's on a roll and so he makes a third act of intercession. He says, one more thing, show me your glory. And it's remarkable, but God responds like this, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence when my glory passes by. I will cover you with my hand and you will see my back, but my face 
must not be seen. And so all of that is the context that leads us up to our passage today. In 34, verse 5, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet the Lord does not leave guilty, the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so we'll notice that when God speaks, when he reveals himself, he describes himself in four ways, sort of four characteristics or attributes, things that are true of who he is. And this is significant because this is directly from the mouth of God. He's saying, this is who I am and how I want to be known and remembered. And the first thing he says is that he is compassionate, gracious, and slow to anger. But isn't it remarkable that the first word out of the mouth of God is his compassion? It's not his glory, his power, his sovereignty, but rather his compassion, his loving kindness, his empathy for the down and out, the disconnected, his soft-heartedness towards us. The second word is gracious, that he offers us what we need at no cost to us. He, he literally gifts us his presence. And he says he's slow to anger, meaning sure he can get angry when it's appropriate. He's angry with sin. He is a jealous God, but his anger is very slow building. It's long suffering. And we've seen this all throughout the book of Exodus that, that when people sin against him, God waits. When Israel's enslaved in Egypt and, and he knows their condition, he waits and then he waits and then he waits. 430 years go by and then he sends nine warnings and then he waits. And then he sends a tenth and he waits. And it's only after the Egyptians chase them out into the heart of the sea does his anger come alive and the waves crash down on them. And then when the Israelites sin, Against God, when they're grumbling in the wilderness, God waits and he responds, he provides. And God is such a patient and compassionate, slow to anger God. And that's the first attribute. The second one is similar, that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. If you remember when they first made it out into the wilderness after going through the Red Sea, they were only there for three days before they started grumbling against God because they had no food or drink. And one of the things God does is he tells Moses to, to strike the rock. And when he does that, water flows out to quench the thirst of all the people. Now, this is two million people plus all of their livestock. And God provides enough water for them, not just in that moment, but for the next 40 years, he provides all the food and all the water they would need. And the point is that God provides abundantly. He provides above and beyond just our basic needs, but he provides abundantly. You could think of it in Jesus' first miracle, the wedding at Cana. The, the wine ran out and he could have just made a, a, a couple of bottles of wine enough to know, you know, to, to you know, be enough for the people. I mean, if he could do this miracle, surely he knows how many bottles of wine they need. But instead it's barrels on barrels of wine to demonstrate the abundance of his provision. 
Or when there's 5,000 people out in the fields and they've been listening to him all day, Jesus takes a few loaves and fishes and he multiplies them. But not just what they need because there are a dozen baskets that are picked up afterwards. I mean, there are, there are leftovers after his miracles. He's so abundant in what he provides and this is so that it can point us to his love and faithfulness. These miracles should point us to the abundance of his love, the abundance of his faithfulness. Now, the third thing is this, that God is forgiving of rebellion and sin. He forgives our sin, our rebellion, our waywardness. When we go our own way, he comes after us and he leads us back to himself. The imagery in the scriptures are are powerful. He wipes away our sins. He buries them in the depths of the ocean. They're as far from him as the east is to the west. He forgets them. He takes off our dirty clothes and puts on white linens. One look from the rebellious back to the father and he forgives and restores. One tear from the prostitute, one act of faith by the leper, one moment of hope from the tax collector. And Jesus is ready to forgive, to heal, to restore, to save, to invite them into life and bless them. And so God is compassionate. He's abounding in love. He's forgiving of rebellion and sin. And then fourth, he is just in punishing the guilty. For those that continue to sin against God with no remorse, with no change, who who lead his beloved children astray, God is just in bringing punishment. But notice that it says his punishment is to the third or fourth generation. It's, it's significant, but it's not abundant like his love. Because he says that his love and faithfulness extends to thousands of generations. And so he's slow to anger. He's just in punishing the guilty, but, but his abundant nature is for his love and faithfulness to his people. And this is who God is. This is how he reveals himself to us. And God is who he says he is. And so in those moments where we doubt and where we struggle and we wonder, is God punishing me? Is he mad at me? Is he disappointed with me? We go back to these things in the scriptures and we see that he is abundant in love. He is full of compassion. He is full of of grace. He is full of truth. He does punish the guilty. But to those who give him one look, he forgives and he restores. It's a beautiful and a significant moment between God and Moses. And Moses is changed forever. When he comes down the mountain, this is the second thing. It's the radiance of intimacy with God. It says in verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. Verse 33, when Moses finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with them, he removed the veil until he came out. So God's glory is transforming. It changes Moses. It it makes him radiant. And in the same way, it makes us radiant too. When we come before the Almighty God in all of his glory, it changes us. It transforms us. Moses not only experiences the glory of God, but he is transformed by it. And then he radiates that same glory 
in a visible way to others. But in John 1, it says this, we have all seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so what Moses experienced in that moment on that mountain is now available to every single one of us through the face of Jesus. Paul reflects on this story in 2 Corinthians 3, which is a a great place to go in community group this week. It's sort of a parallel passage. And Paul says that people don't see the glory of God because they have not turned to Christ. He says, when, everyone, when anyone turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. And then the Holy Spirit works on us to transform us into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory. So in the same way that Moses was changed by an encounter with God, we too are changed in the presence of God. Again, we become what we behold. In chapter 32, Aaron saw the Israelites you know, practicing idolatry. They had you know, brought some of their jewelry together. And when he saw that, he went all in on the idol worship and he turned it into a calf and he led him in this debaucherous worship service. Meanwhile, Moses asks to see God and he is utterly transformed. Both of these are, are moments of pure worship, of, of going all in with something, being consumed by something. For Moses, it turns him into the glory of God. And so we can ask of anything in our lives, anything that we're looking at, anything that is consuming us, whether it's our hobbies or media or anything, what is it doing to us? What is it turning us into? Is it making us more like Christ with ever-increasing glory, or is it not? One of the things I hadn't noticed before in this passage, why does Moses' face radiate with the glory of God? Off the top of my head, I would have said it's because he's seen God. He's had this moment where he's hidden in the rock, but he sees the back of God. But actually what the text says in verse 29 is that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Not so much that he had this once-in-a-lifetime view of God that none of us have had in the same way, but rather just because he had been speaking with the Lord, his face was radiant. Not only that, but every time he goes into the tent of meeting from now on, his face would be radiant and he would have to cover it with the veil. And so it's interesting, it's not the once in a lifetime encounter with God, the the mountaintop experience, if you will, that makes us radiant. It's the regular turning to God in prayer and worship and fellowship with others that makes us like him, that makes us radiant. And so the scriptures show us these two primary ways of beholding God that lead us to radiating his glory, looking at Jesus and talking with God. It's pretty simple. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And so by looking to Jesus, we see God in all his glory. But then second, talking with God in prayer and fellowship with him and worshiping his name and seeking his face in prayer and asking him for what we need, bringing our fears and doubts before him. We are transformed as we behold the living God. And so as great as this moment is, and it is a huge moment in the history of Israel, in the the redemptive moment for the, the Old Testament Israelites, as big as this moment is, like so many moments at Exodus, it's pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to something 
even greater because in Exodus, no one could see God and live, but in Jesus, the image of the invisible God is made visible. In Exodus, only one man could enter the presence of God, but through Jesus, all mankind is invited into the tent of meeting. In Exodus, God's presence descends onto the mountain for a moment, but in Jesus, God's spirit descends into our very hearts for all time. And the book of Exodus ends with God's people still in the wilderness, still longing for the promised land. But even when they do reach the land, they have all the same problems because they're basically still the same people. But through Jesus, we're invited into a true and a better eternal life that culminates at the end with the heavenly city, the true promised land, where all our promises disappear because we've been permanently and gloriously transformed into the image of Christ. And so as we wrap up this passage in this series, we ask, where do we go from here? I think there's three invitations that God has for us through this book. In the, in the opening message of this series, I shared a quote from an older pastor named Ray Ortland, and he said that our sort of generation of churches, our tribes of churches, We've been so blessed to recover the gospel, the the truth of God's word and how he has saved us. And yet he said, we have not had a corresponding renewal around the presence of God. We have not come alive to the love of God. We have not been transformed in our worship and prayer in the way that other generations have. And so he's making the case that yes, we need the word of God and we need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the most part, our churches have done so well to recover that, but have we entered into the relational beauties of God? Have we grown in our worship and our prayer lives? Have we been personally transformed? As Scotty Smith says, you can hear the lyric of the gospel and still not feel the music. And so the task of our generation of this church and any church is to maintain the truth of the gospel while also pressing forward into the presence of God that which the gospel actually calls forth and and cultivates to lead us into prayer and worship. And so, as I said, I think there are three invitations from Exodus. And the first is to worship God as he is. That God has invited us into his presence to worship him. The more we've spent time in the book of Exodus, the more I've felt like this is actually a worship series. I mean, really these 12 weeks of of looking at the book of Exodus, it it might as well just be a worship series because it comes up in every single passage. It's the first commandment. It's what God tells Moses to go and, and tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. Even all the laws of, of Exodus, some of the ones that don't make sense, like don't mix fabrics, don't intermarry with other tribes, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You're like, what are these for? It's all about purity of worship. I mean, some of them really didn't make much sense other than to illustrate something true about worship of God, that it should not be mixed with anything, that there should not be an ounce of idolatry in our hearts. It should all be worship of God. And so practically, what does it look like for us? And I want to encourage us to continue to prioritize worship in our lives. On a personal level, it could look like just increasing the amount of worship music that you put on during the day. It could be singing in the car or singing over your kids or or finding some way that you can sing out to God throughout the day. But worship, like so many other things, is meant to be done in community. I want to encourage you to continue to prioritize worship. 
Continue to prioritize being here in a place where you can worship with other people. You can even come at like 9.55. Get in a few minutes early, you know? Get your coffee, talk to your friends. That great fellowship you have after church, it's actually available before church as well. If you have kids, I mean, we opened the classes at like 9.45. When our kids were really young, like if Jesse was out of town, I would bring those boys like 45 minutes early. Like, you all want to serve the Lord? I brought three of them. You want to start by checking the diapers. If you have goldfish, they haven't eaten. So bring your kids in. Be ready to sing. Be ready to worship. The second thing is this. Ordinary prayer makes us extraordinary people. If you think about how far Moses has come in the book of Exodus, it's really remarkable. But at the beginning, he has all this influence in Egypt, and he uses none of it. He kills a man and then is forced to to leave Egypt, to go on the run, and he moves out into the wilderness for 40 years. It's in the wilderness that he's transformed. It's in affliction and pain and suffering that he's transformed, and it's in the wilderness that he experiences the living God, the fiery presence of God. Even after he comes back, though, he's still a mess. And in chapter four, it says that God is close to killing him, but his wife intercedes and saves his life. I mean, the guy is a mess for a long time, but when we reach the end of Exodus, he's like a giant in the faith. And what happened is that he had spent time in the presence of God. What changed was that regular interaction with the Father, day in and day out. Now, practically, there's no better way for us to learn prayer than with one another. In community group, at Friday night prayer, and in our Sunday services, we learn to pray with one another and from one another. Praying with others transforms our personal prayer life as well. And so ordinary prayer makes us extraordinary people. And then lastly, We've been blessed to be a blessing. It's one of the grand themes of the book of Exodus, that God draws us in to send us out. We're a people with a new identity and a people with a new mission. We exist for God and we exist to make him known. And so our mission, according to the New Testament, is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to those far from God, to create communities of light in the darkness, to bring healing and renewal in all the places where God has put us in this world. And so I think it'd be appropriate for us each to consider who God has put in our lives that are far from him. I mean, what are just like two or three or four people that don't know the Lord that are in and out of your life every single week? And if you think of those three or four people, what would it look like for them to become a fully engaged follower of Christ? What would those steps be between now and then? What would those conversations be? What would the relationship look like? And chances are, if you're investing creatively and prayerfully in the lives of three or four people, you'll find that God has already prepared one or two or all of them for those conversations. And so God has drawn us in to send us out. God is inviting us deeper into his presence, prayer, makes us extraordinary people, and we're blessed to be a blessing. always feel a a sort of completion, sense of completion at the end of a a series. I don't know if that's just me, because there's not that many things that are actually finished in ministry. You know, it's all baby steps. Shout out, what about Bob? 
for the 35 plus crowd. Baby steps in the hallway, baby steps to community group. When we reach the end of a series, it's, it's a sense of accomplishment, but we also are in the midst of a lot of transition as a church. We're growing, folks are getting baptized, our groups are multiplying, leaders are joining our team. And so for us as leaders, we've been talking in our, in our meetings, our team meetings, and just saying we're, we're not excited because the church is growing. We're not excited by the metrics. We're excited because people are growing. What we feel like God is doing in our midst is so, so incredibly encouraging because of how it's transforming each of us. What's happening in, in the hearts of our members and the hearts of you all, what we get to see as leaders is one of the most profound and beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. One of the most fun, one of the most enjoyable things I've ever experienced in ministry. And our heart for you as leaders is that we would continue to seek him. That the main thing would be the main thing that we would seek God's face. That we would stand firm on the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that we wouldn't just live on, on past experiences or, or live on good theology, but that we would press into the person of God. Seek the face of the living God together. He is worth seeking. It's not enough for God that we should be saved, and it's not enough for us that we are just saved. Instead, he saves us for something, to live in his presence. And so he has drawn us out of the waters so that he might draw us into his presence, that we might live there forever. Let's pray.